Our Father, we're so thankful for Calvary. We're so thankful for the cross. We're so thankful for your mercy uh, that is just poured out upon us so richly and so freely. We're thankful for your love. We're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the fellowship that you've allowed us to be a part of. We're thankful for the opportunity that we can come together and meet. What a great privilege. We don't take that for granted. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to allow us to meet and to dig deeply into your word and to be fed by your truth and to be encouraged by it and to be an encouragement to uh, others. We pray most of all, Lord, that you're pleased with our worship of you. And we pray that you would open our eyes uh, to receive your truth and the study of your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bible and open up to John chapter 5. We are in the midst of a long and ongoing study here in a most wonderful and challenging portion of Scripture as we continue to look at the person of uh, Jesus Christ. And as I've said repeatedly through this study, uh, what you believe about the person of Jesus Christ is of utmost uh, importance because the truth is Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. That's the truth. And if you don't believe that truth or you reject that truth, then you will pay for that error eternally in a literal physical place known as hell. If you reject that truth, John chapter 3, verse 18 says, He who believes in him, meaning Christ, he who believes that Jesus is the Christ, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So again, what you do with Jesus Christ is of vital importance to escape eternal punishment. You must believe first that he is God. And then you must believe what he has done. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses, says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God the Father, again, sent his Son, the one who knew no sin, into a world of rebellious individuals, rebellious men and women. He sent his Son into this world out of his love for a fallen and rebellious mankind. And although Christ never committed one sin, the text says God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, meaning that Christ or that God the Father placed upon Christ or imputed to Christ or credited to Christ's account our sin. The sinless one bore our sin. The sinless one became accountable for our sin debt. The sinless one answered for the penalty of our sin, and the penalty of sin always is death. The wages of sin is death. And Christ took our place, the sinless one. The Bible calls that substitution. And the Father poured out upon Christ, the sinless Christ, the full fury of his wrath that was due for all of the sins, for all of the people who would ever believe. And the sinless one again becomes the sin bearer. He is punished so that we who are guilty, we who are sinful, might be set free if we place our faith and trust in Christ. Tremendous good news. I read the passage out of uh, 1 Corinthians this morning because I knew everything was focused upon the cross, and I knew that the world thinks the message of the cross is absolute foolishness, but it is the gospel. It's the truth unto life, right? It's the truth unto salvation. To the, to the world who does not believe, it's foolishness, but to us who believe, it's the greatest truth you could ever hear. The great exchange. The Savior comes, and he bears our sin and punishment, And the exchange is we're credited with his righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it was all done freely. All as a gift by God's grace. It requires us to do nothing except believe what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 3 and 23 says all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, that's the gospel. That's the good news of forgiveness of sin that comes freely as a gift of God's grace. So salvation or escape from eternal punishment begins first by understanding who Jesus is 
believing that he is, again, God come in the flesh, and then by understanding and believing, personally appropriating what he has done, believing the gospel, believing in his substitutionary death, believing his literal death, his literal physical burial, his literal physical resurrection triumphantly over the grave. Christ came and he paid the debt of sin, again, which is death in full. He conquered sin, he conquered death, and there's a resurrection, amen? We were watching a movie with the college students then. One of the lines in that movie was, the resurrection changes everything. Right? The resurrection changes everything. Life is different in this world that has fallen without hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we bask in that truth. The forgiveness of sin through Christ for all who would believe. Again, that's the gospel. And this is the message of the church. This is the message of the church that God has left the church on the earth to proclaim. This is the church's primary message. This is the most important, vital message of the church. It's the gospel. It is not the message of the church on how to achieve so-called racial reconciliation. It is not the message of the church to promote so-called social justice. It is not the message of the church to promote so-called environmental justice. The message of the church is the gospel. The message of the church is the proclamation that men and women can escape hell, can escape eternal punishment from their sin through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by placing their faith in him. The message of the church is a proclamation that God freely does that. God freely forgives sinners, again, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone, completely apart from mankind's efforts, completely apart from any attempted good deeds. Believe this truth. Believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll have eternal life. Reject that truth and you'll face the eternal consequences, which is eternal condemnation. That, my friends, is true truth. That is true truth. That's what the gospel is. That's what God's word proclaims. Now, last time, if you've been following us in this series... You know, last time we said from the text of the scripture here that the sad reality is most people, most men and women are unwilling to come to Christ that they might have life. That's the sad reality. Most men and women are trapped in willful unbelief, in active, purposeful, irrational unbelief. So the sad reality is that most men don't believe in Jesus. Most men won't believe in Jesus. Most men won't believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who is in the scripture because they flat out do not want to. They don't want to. They are unwilling to come. And again, this kind of willful unbelief is irrational in light of the fact that God desires to save men. That God desires to show mercy to men. That God desires to bless men. That God desires that all men would not perish, but all men would come to eternal life. Unbelief is completely irrational. And again, and sadly, unbelief willfully chooses condemnation. Unbelief willfully chooses sadness, sorrow, heartache, pain, suffering. Unbelief chooses Satan. Unbelief chooses sin. Unbelief chooses the agony of hell and again, eternal punishment. And again, it's all completely irrational. But unbelief is the intentional position that men take and they hold on to by great effort. Because they fight against the truth. It's rebellion in the face of all evidence. That's what unbelief is. Men actively suppress, fight against, hold down, restrain, presently, continually, the truth and unrighteousness is what the scripture says. Now in our study, Jesus has made some pretty bold claims. And he has repeatedly claimed that he is God, equal with God. And then again, belief upon him provides escape from eternal condemnation. And that's the general thesis, as I've told you numerous times, of the gospel writer John. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 31, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life or may have life in his name. So that's been the claim of Christ himself, that life comes only through him. 
from verses 30 or 17 through 30, we saw the response of the religious leaders who attacked Jesus. Remember the flow of the story, who supposedly had uh, broken the Sabbath because he healed the man there at the pool of Bethesda, and he told him to walk, take up his bed, and leave. Uh, the response to Jesus uh, was one of scorn, hatred, because supposedly he'd broken one of their laws, not God's law, but their law. And Jesus' response to these religious individuals was to kind of double down, if you will. He says, look, I'm equal with God. I'm equal with God in nature. I'm equal with God in works. I'm equal with God in love, in knowledge. I'm equal with God in sovereign power. I'm equal with God in judgment. Therefore, I'm equal with God in honor and worship. So essentially, he tells these religious leaders there who confronted him that I can do anything I want to do with the Sabbath because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Again, he doesn't, in the context, address the Sabbath and let me teach you what the Sabbath really means and how you guys are all messed it up. He doesn't do that. He just elevates the discussion concerning himself. He elevates the discussion concerning himself and the fact that, again, he is God come in the flesh. Again, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So since Jesus really is God come in the flesh, one who cannot lie, he gives truthful, t- truthful testimony, truthful witness concerning who he is, and he defends and proclaims his deity in order that men might have life. Look at verse 34. He says, I'm saying you the things that I'm saying to you. Verse 34, that you might be what? Saved. This is why I'm telling you this. I, I, I'm saying these things to you that you might be saved. Now, again, he's made these repeated claims of uh, identity of who he is. He says he's equal, equal with God. He's made the claim that he's a the giver of life, that he has, again, the same power as God has over the, God the Father has over death. He's going to demonstrate that here in a couple chapters, right? John chapter 11, Jesus is going to physically raise Lazarus from the dead, so he has the power to raise men. He has the power to give life on a spiritual level. He has the power to give life on a physical level. Verses 22 and 23, he claims that he was the ultimate and final judge. Again, he is the ultimate and final judge. John in 1 John chapter 20 or chapter 2 verse 23 says those who claim to honor God, those who say they follow God but they ignore the son, they're not worshiping the true God. They're worshiping an imagination, something that they've made up. They're fooling themselves. 1 John 2 and 23, whoever denies the son does not have the father. The one who confesses the son has the father also. So all these people who say, well, I'm a worshiper of God. I just don't believe that Jesus was God. You are worshiping a false God. You're not worshiping the God as proclaimed in the Bible. Jesus claimed not only had the power of death and the final judgment, but he said he was the determiner of all men's destinies. Again, he claimed that he had the power to raise people from the dead, and he had the power to sentence them either to a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment. So again, these are the, proclaim, the, the proclamations, the claims of Christ here just in this fifth chapter. Again, what a person does with Jesus Christ is the issue. It's the issue. Do not get sucked up into all of the sidebar issues, all of the sub-issues, all of the things that are kind of problematic in the world in which we live in that seem to be growing on a daily basis because the issue is what are you going to do with the person of Jesus Christ? That is the issue. I've said it to you a hundred times. It does not matter one bit who's running Congress or who's the president or who's the vice president or who does this thing or does that thing the moment you're about to step into eternity. I guarantee you, and I absolutely guarantee you, it matters even less the second that you take your last breath and enter into eternity. What do you do with Jesus Christ? That's the most important question for any man, any woman. Now again, when we come to verse 30 here, as we're working our way through the text, he continues on. And he says, look, everything I do is always in coordination. I'm always just doing the will of the Father. So 30 verse, verse 30 really is a, a, a summary of everything that he said, 17 through 29 to this point. But he says, look, everything I do is just according to the will of the Father. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But again, it's another affirmation to deity, equality with God. And I told you what's interesting here in verse 30, there's kind of a change because up to this point, he has been using the third person when he's talking about who he is. Describing himself as the son of man or the son of God. 
making claims of equality with God, but somewhat distancing himself by using the third person. Why would he do that? Well, I think in part because what he is saying was difficult for the ears of those Jewish religious leaders uh, to receive in part, but instead of backing away and going, yeah, I understand you guys have a problem with this, he doesn't do that. He doubles down. So what he does here, starting in verse 30, he uses the first person singular. So again, instead of backing away, instead of de-escalating the uh, confrontation, if you will, he just pushes forward, doubles down, elevates the entire discussion, doesn't distance himself whatsoever from the fact that he is God in the flesh, and he just uses the first person singular. So again, he's making this emphasis, and he's emphasizing again in front of the religious leaders of uh, Israel. They have no right to judge him because they don't recognize who he is. But he is who he is, so they have no right to judge him. Now, we understand that it's one thing for people to make claims, right? It's one thing for Jesus to say that he's equal with God. But there needs to be some kind of evidence, some kind of testimony that lends credibility to a witness's statement. So why should people believe that? Why should people believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? God, again, come in the flesh. Why should people consider Jesus' testimony reliable? Why should people be fearful of their response to the person of Jesus Christ? Good questions. So in essence, what's going to begin to happen here in the text is Jesus is going to produce witnesses to back up his testimony, witnesses to support his claims. So it's almost like we're in a court scene. There's courtroom evidence being introduced and presented. Because Jesus understood the legal procedures of the Jewish culture that required independent witnesses. You had to have two or three uh, witnesses. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact would be confirmed, as it says in the book of Deuteronomy. So he needs that external evidence, objective evidence, confirming testimony. Uh, Verse 31, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. Now, Now, what is he saying there? Well, he's obviously not saying he's lying about who he is because he can't do that. Again, he's just saying, look, I understand it's easy for people to make divine claims. I mean, we live in a day where people do that all the time. In fact, there have been many false Christs, many false messiahs at the time of Christ and since. So he realizes that for people to understand and really believe, there has to be testimony, not just his own. So uh, if not, his testimony is going to be open to suspicion. So there has to be corroborating evidence, at least in the ears and the eyes, the, the minds of the people whom he's speaking to, especially the religious leaders and anybody who wants to have an interest in the Savior. In fact, over in John eight twelve, Jesus was speaking to the Jewish religious leaders. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Verse 13 says, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you're bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. What they're saying is we don't believe you. I mean, we don't accept it. We don't accept the testimony of any person who steps in the forefront and says, look, all of a sudden I'm the Messiah. I'm the God. Uh, God come in the flesh, the long awaited one. There has to be witnesses. John 8 and 14, Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. He's saying, look, okay, I I get that, but my witness is true because I happen to be incarnate God. I happen to be who I claim to be. My witness is true. He says, I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You people judge according to the flesh, and I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I am the one who sent me. Even in your lot has been written that the testimony of two men is true. Verse 18, John 8, verse 18, I am he who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me bears witness. He says, okay, I got it. It's one thing just to hear one person make a statement, but what about the Father's testimony? What does the Father say concerning me? And that's in essence what he's starting into here in verse 32. He goes, okay. I say something, it's true because I am who I say I am, but I can understand why you don't understand that, why you don't believe that. So I'm going to produce a witness here in this courtroom scene, and I'm going for it right off the bat. I'm going to bring the big guns in, as it were. I'm going to bring a surprise witness. And again, the witness is going to be none other than God the Father. He's going to give cooperation. 
He's going to give testimony concerning who I am. Verse 32, there's another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. So again, he said, I'm not, I'm not alone going to give you testimony. There's one whose testimony you really need to listen to. You need to believe that testimony because he is the most credible witness that anybody could ever produce because he is the God of all truth. He send, says again there, verse 32, there's another who bears witness of me. It's interesting that the word bears witness in the Greek's present tense active voice, which means it's something that's ongoing, something that's happening, something that's even happening now. The Father is always bearing witness to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike John the Baptist, who we'll see just in a moment in the text, uh, when he is spoken of, his testimony is past tense. But this is active, present, present active. There's another who always bears witness to me, actively bears witness to me. So again, the Lord is declaring that his father is going to bring distinct testimony or is always bearing distinct testimony presently if the religious leaders of Israel would just stop and listen. But they won't. Remember already in verse 16 of chapter 5, the text says they were persecuting Jesus. Verse 18 says they wanted to kill him. And verse 40 says they were what? Unwilling to come. Right? They weren't listening. They were persecuting, they wanted to kill him, and they were unwilling to come that they might have eternal life. Which simply fulfills what the Apostle John said at the beginning of the book concerning Jesus, chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. They didn't receive him. And then he goes on and says this in verse 32. And then he says, I know. He goes, I know with the knowledge that is perfect, right? A perfect knowledge from all eternity. I know that the, test, the testimony which, bears, which he bears of me is true. Because again, he is the Father, God the Father. He never lies. He never witnesses to a lie. He always tells the truth. Now, it's interesting as you look at the story, because from this moment forward, again, Jesus is kind of on the offense here, right? He started using the first person plural, and he's really going to kind of back these guys into a corner. He's going to squeeze them into a box, if you will. He's going to create a dilemma, a number of dilemmas for them to have to deal with. Trick question. Now, but who are these religious leaders? Supposedly, were they guys, weren't were they the guys that knew the Old Testament? Supposedly, weren't they the ones that supposedly uh, represented God or were leading people to God, so they must know something about God, right? So again, in this courtroom scene, Christ is going to bring witnesses to the chair, and the Father is going to give testimony. And the Father, again, who's the God of all truth, is going to give truthful testimony. And he's going to give, the Father's going to give true testimony concerning the person of Jesus Christ on three different levels Three different lines of evidence. Number one, the Father is going to bear witness or bear testimony concerning the reality of who Jesus really is through John the Baptist. Through John the Baptist. Secondly, the Father is going to bear witness concerning Jesus because of Jesus' works or Jesus' miracles. Jesus' power demonstrated in the earth. And then thirdly, God the Father is going to bear witness concerning the person of Jesus through the scripture or through the word of God. All right, so that's where we're at. We're in a courtroom. Evidence is about to be presented, so here we go. Witness number one, God. Here's the testimony. The Father's going to bear witness concerning who Jesus is through the person of John the Baptist. Verse 33. You have sent to John, and he bore witness to the truth. But the witness which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You have sent to John, and he bore witness to the truth. Now, you there is emphatic, so it's you yourselves. Talking to the religious leaders, you yourselves. So Jesus' first witness to the stand is John the Baptist. And the religious leaders themselves, they knew of him. They knew of his powerful ministry. And Jesus is reminding them of that fact. Jesus is reminding them of that powerful ministry that impressed even them enough that they would send a delegation out to see him in the wilderness. You yourself sent to John, right? The religious leaders wanted to go out and find out who in the world this guy was and what he was doing. You can just sit there and listen or you can flip back and read with me, but out of chapter 1, verse 19, this was the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem and asked, who are you? 
And he confessed and did not deny. He confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked, well, well, then, are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, he said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they'd been sent from the Pharisees and had asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Verse 26, John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. And it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So John is a prophet from God. He supports, he gives testimony to the claims of Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, that he's God come in the flesh. He gives supporting testimony, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Jewish religious leaders sent a delegation out there to find out about this guy because he was making such a scene. And the Jewish religious leaders could not and did not ever deny that John the Baptist was indeed a prophet of God. In fact, if you want to look, you can again listen or turn over uh, to, uh, or just turn back to, John, to uh, Luke chapter 20. The Jewish religious leaders never did, could not, would not, deny that John the Baptist was a prophet. Everybody knew that he was a prophet. You see that recorded once in Mark 11, but then again over here in Luke chapter 20, verse 1. And it came about on the days where, well, Jesus, well, he, Jesus, sees what was uh, was teaching the people and in the temple and preaching uh, the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders confronted him and they spoke to him saying, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? And who's the one who gave you authority, right? What in the world are you doing? How come you just walk into the temple and start teaching people? What are you doing? Who are you? Verse 3, and he answered and said to them, I shall ask you a question and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Verse 5, they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, then he will say, why did you not believe him? Yeah, right? Why, especially the testimony. If he's from heaven, why didn't you believe him? Especially the testimony of John the Baptist identified me as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The reason if we say John the Baptist was from heaven, the question is, again, why don't you believe that testimony? Why don't you believe everything that he's said already concerning me? And I already told you the answer previously is because they do not want to. They don't want to. They're unwilling. Verse 6, but if we say from men, right, if we say that John the Baptist's ministry was from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John the Baptist was a prophet, or John was a prophet. Verse 7, they answered and said they didn't know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Just backing him into a corner. Make a choice. The entire nation knew that John the Baptist was a prophet. And the entire nation knew that John the Baptist was a prophet sent by God with a message of salvation. Because John the Baptist didn't show up and speak on his own behalf. He spoke on behalf of God. John 1, verse 6. There came a man sent from God. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. And more than likely, people knew the story about John the Baptist. We just studied it a few weeks ago in the evenings out of Luke chapter 1. An angel comes and tells Zacharias, who's an old man, who's the priest, who's never had children because he and his wife are old and she's barren beyond childbearing years, that they're going to have a son. This is a miracle, son. Luke chapter 1, verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You will give him a name, John. He will have, uh, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. 
I'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who goes as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of righteous to the righteous so that to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist had a ministry proclaiming salvation. John the Baptist was a uh, one who prepared the way for the Lord, for the salvation to come to God's people, to the world through the person of the Messiah. He, he had a ministry that just encouraged people to be saved, right? Be saved from the judgment to come. Again, John 1 and 23 said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, for 400 years, there hadn't been a prophet in Israel until John the Baptist showed up. He preached this message of repentance from sin. And again, he identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Lamb of God. Uh, John 1 and 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he was he of whom I said has come before me, or he who comes after me is a higher rank than I before he existed before me. Right in, in, the, in the flow of the story, John the Baptist is about six months older than Jesus Christ. He says, No, the one I'm testifying here is a higher rank because he existed before me, meaning he's eternal. John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 34, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. That's the testimony of John the Baptist. So since John the Baptist is a prophet, and everybody knows that, everybody recognizes it, even the Jewish religious leaders won't deny that truth. Why then didn't they believe his message about Jesus being the Messiah? Answer, they didn't want to. He goes, yeah, it's kind of, that's kind of overly simplified. No, that's the truth. They didn't want to. They flat out didn't want to. They were unwilling to believe. Back to, uh, uh, to John 5. Jesus says, you've sent, you yourself sent to John, chapter 5, verse 33. He's borne witness of the truth, verse 34. But the witness which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. The witness, the testimony which I receive is not from man. What does that mean? Well, Jesus didn't mention the testimony of John the Baptist because he needed it. Right? He doesn't need that testimony. He doesn't need the testimony of other men. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be God coming to flesh because that's true. His claim to truth doesn't rest on the witness of any other man. His claim to that reality rests on the truth. The facts, because that's who he is. The Messiah, God come in the flesh. But he wanted to remind them, the religious leaders, about John the Baptist and about John the Baptist's testimony. So again, that the men would understand, that men would receive that witness. That by remembering his testimony, John the Baptist's testimony, men would be saved, because he identified Jesus as the Messiah. I say these things that you may be saved. So Jesus points to the testimony of John the Baptist so that men might believe the truth concerning himself, find life, and escape eternal punishment. I say these things that you may be saved, verse 35. He, John the Baptist, he was a lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. John the Baptist was a lamp that was burning, shining, past tense. He was a lamp. Meaning more than likely at this time that the Lord Jesus is speaking, uh, John the Baptist is either in prison or dead. Right? Remember he confronted Herod Antipas on his unlawful marriage uh, to his brother's wife, and that led to his arrest and execution. His public ministry at that time came to an end. John the Baptist, he was the lamp. That word there Luknos, it means portable lamp. He was burning, he was shining, phos, it means the bright light of daylight. John the Baptist was a portable lamp, a little light, burning, burning with inner zeal, proclaiming the truth, and he was shining and reflecting forth a brighter light, is what he's saying there. And I thought to myself, well, you know, John the Baptist is really kind of a great example that we need in the time in which we live, right? He, he's a reminder to us all what a true witness should be. A little lamp that is shining a bigger lamp, a brighter light with a burning passion 
for that truth. That's what the world desperately needs in the time in which we live. The world, I don't know if you've noticed it. Have you noticed that the world sits in darkness? Getting darker? Desperately needs uncompromising witnesses that will shine the light of the truth. That will again burn with a passion for the souls of lost men and burn for a passion uh, for the glory of Christ. Because most certainly a dim lukewarmness towards Christ has caused a lot of people to pay little attention to the gospel in the day in which we live. Dim light, lukewarmness, takes away from the gospel. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, speaks to the issue of shining and burning a bright for Christ to gain the world's notice. He says this. This is how biblical faith took root in England. It was not when the biblical party seized the government that people opened their hearts to the gospel. It was when persecuted men and women laid down their lives for the truth of Christ. The most brilliant, he says, was the witness of Bishop Hugh Latimer when he was tied to the stake and set to flames for his refusal to abandon the gospel. Turning aside to his comrade, Nicholas Ridley, he called out before the people, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Phillips goes on, he says, If we want to serve a mighty witness for Christ today, we too must be prepared to die for his gospel and for, his, for the salvation of souls. And this means we must be prepared to live for them as well. We have to be ready to live for the gospel, for the person of Christ. It's a tremendous challenge, especially in the world in which we live, a world that's growing darker, a world that we can see if we look up, we can see that persecution, persecution is on the horizon, it's coming. The question is, in the state of the world in which we live, will we live for Christ? Will we shine brightly for him in the midst of the coming, advancing darkness and trouble that most certainly is on the horizon? John the Baptist was a person who was uncompromising. A lesser light, burning with zeal for the truth and the person of the truth, and just kept focusing on the person of the truth, the greater light. Verse 35 again, he was a lamp that was burning and shining. Again, just lesser, a lesser light reflecting a greater light. And again, that's exactly what John said of John the Baptist back in chapter 1. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness to the light that all men might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. So again, John the Baptist is not the source of the light. Jesus was. He was just reflecting the truth. It's like up in the heavens, right? The moon doesn't have any kind of power to generate light. It just reflects the light of the sun. The greater light and the lesser light. And John the Baptist just kept preaching the truth. He kept telling people who Jesus really was. He kept taking that message to a dark world. Jesus says, John was a light that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You know what that is? It's a rebuke. It's a rebuke. You were willing for a while to rejoice in light. Hey, you know, while there was nothing on TV in the day and uh, there was no any kind of entertainment, there was something going on in the Jordan River. So there's a lot of people. There's a spectacle going on there. There hadn't been a prophet in the nation of Israel for some 400 years, and the people were flocking out to the wilderness to see what in the world is going on, to see John the Baptist. I mean, he dressed kind of funny, ate funny food. I mean, this sounds kind of a, a, like a little carnival going out there. We ought to go see what's going on. You were willing to rejoice in for a little while. Right, John the Baptist's ministry is attracting attention. The religious leaders go, we've got to find out what's going on. Right? He's, uh, John the Baptist is uh, awakening the curiosity of the entire nation. You are willing to rejoice in a little while, for a little while, in his light. Uh, you know what happened? John the Baptist, man, he knows how to mess up a party. You know what he did? He started calling people to repentance. That'll put it into your dance. John the Baptist started proclaiming a message of personal repentance from sin. When he started saying things that men didn't like, and then he started directly denouncing the religious leaders for their hypocrisy, Matthew 3 and 7, 
when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? When he was baptizing Jewish individuals, he go, well, what's the problem with him baptizing Jewish individuals? Well, the Jewish religious leaders already considered every Jew is already part of the kingdom. Therefore, they didn't need to be baptized. They're already part of the kingdom. It's only the Gentiles that needed some kind of proselyte baptism, right? So when John started proclaiming the truth, repentance from sin, and he started confronting these people, these religious leaders on their, on their hypocrisy, you know what? He started to becoming very unpopular, especially with the false religious leaders. You rejoice for a while to rebuke. Because John the Baptist was single-minded, focused. His ministry was entirely about Jesus Christ. He didn't go to the right. He didn't go to the left. His ministry is about Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Day after day, he just kept pointing people to Christ. Day after day, he pointed people to Christ. You know why? Because that's what faithful ministers do. That's what faithful shepherds do. That's what faithful churches do. That's what faithful ministries do. They point people to Jesus Christ. Not to the music. Not to the experience. I'm going to turn the lights down now and have the smoke machine go and get some funny lights dancing on the wall behind me. They don't focus everybody's attention on what you may, quote-unquote, get out of the service. Faithful ministers, pastors, shepherds, ministries, churches, point people to Christ. Why? Because that's what faithful ministers do. It's what faithful people do. John the Baptist pointed people to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the only, people, only person who can save anybody's soul. Faithful ministers want to see people saved. And people can only be saved from the wrath to come if they place their faith in Jesus, the person of Jesus, who is the Christ, who is, again, the Son of the living God. You have to understand who he is, and you have to understand what he's done via, via substitution. And it is Jesus Christ who is the answer to mankind's problems. Jesus Christ is the answer to mankind's problems. Again, I tell you all the time, if you're listening to people pontificate on how to solve some of the problems in the world, if they're a political leader or if they're a so-called religious leader, and if they're not pointing you first, primarily, and only to the person of Jesus Christ, you're getting played. Don't send your money in. Don't waste your time listening to them. Well, I know that they're believers in their, in, their, in their life. I mean, they go to church on Sunday. That's good. Then how about somebody have some guts and stand up and address this country and say this is the problem, it's sin, and only Jesus Christ can solve the problem? I'll vote for that, candidate. So far, I haven't, 61 years old, haven't heard it. Pretty much convinced politics isn't going to solve our problem pretty much convinced that people who are dead in trespasses and sin, who sit in darkness, who are in rebellion, who will not understand, cannot understand, refuse to understand the truth, can be of any help to us on any level. Pretty much convinced of that myself. Jesus Christ can. John the Baptist, single-minded, with passion, devoted to Christ. Cost him his head, standing for the truth. Pretty sure he didn't look for that, but that's what happened when he stood up for the truth and proclaimed it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. Number two. How the Father gives testimony, right? First through John the Baptist. Who's John the Baptist? Sent by God. Not just sent by God, but sent by God at the proper time. It was God who again ordained that Elizabeth, who was barren, of old age would be supernaturally pregnant at the appropriate time in redemptive history. So when John the Baptist is in his mother's womb, he's there supernaturally. He's supernaturally present by the work of God. Again, set into the world by God with a message that points people to Christ. John the Baptist again spoke, and when he spoke, everybody knew that he was uh, speaking on behalf of the Father. God the Father was speaking through him. So the second testimony, the second witness that is coming again from God the Father, John the Baptist is really a testimony from God the Father because God sent him. The second testimony concerning Christ from God the Father is the works. And it's a greater testimony than even that testimony that John the Baptist just gave. 
The Father bears witness to Jesus through Jesus' works. Point number two. The Father bears witness to Jesus through Jesus' works. Verse 36. It says, But the witness, or the testimony, which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father gave uh, Father has given me to accomplish these very works I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. The witness which I have is greater than that of John. So what Jesus is going to do here in this courtroom kind of setting, he's going to bring forth witnesses. Uh, and again, it's God, basically the overall witness, but the different levels of testimony is going to increase in importance. As important as John the Baptist's testimony was and is concerning Christ, more so, Christ says, are my works. My works are important, but they're not as great as what's coming after that, the testimony being the final testimony in the Word of God. So it's an ascending level of importance. So John the Baptist's testimony was vital, but Jesus says, look, my works, my miracles are even more important. They are greater, a greater witness than John's testimony. But the witness which I have is, a greater, is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now, already in the context of our study of John, we saw how Nicodemus, remember back in chapter 3, Nicodemus came. Uh, he saw the miraculous work, the power of Christ. John chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus called them signs. Now, I've told you this before, signs point to something else, right? A greater reality. It's kind of a goofy analogy, but it's helpful, right? You don't want the sign that says donuts. You want the donuts. You don't want the sign, right? Signs point to something else. And Nicodemus says, look, the signs that you perform, these things that you're doing... We understand that you've come from God. You can't do this unless God is with you. So that's the sign. The miracles point to the presence of God. Now, obviously, Nicodemus doesn't get the full story, but at least he's on the right track, right? You do these signs, and you can't do these signs unless God is with him, right? Unless God is with you. And again, it's interesting, at the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, verse 30, it says, many other signs, therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, these have been written, verse 31, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing that you might have life. John chapter 21, verse 25. There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, suppose that even the world couldn't contain all the books that were written. And Jesus did a lot of signs. Jesus' power, Jesus' work, tremendous testimony to his deity. The works which the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now, let me tell you something about this. This is fascinating. What we're about to enter into, enter into is fascinating. Concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power that he demonstrated while he was on the earth. And there's a lot to consider, and we're not going to get through it all in one morning. And to be truthful with you, just to give you a heads up, I'm going to camp here for a while, all right? So get, you know, fluff yourself up in your chair and get ready to sit for a while. Let me just start to give you an introduction to the power of Christ. What gives him the right to claim that he's God? Well, just look at his work, right? The very works I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. The very works that I do bear witness to the fact that I'm not just some teacher, some moral philosopher that men ought to have some kind of warm feeling about and give a thumbs up or a thumbs down on whether or not we think that he said that or didn't say that in the text like the men can set over the word of God. No, the, the works that I do bear witness of who I am and the fact that the Father has sent me. And again, this is just introduction. I'll just give you a few here. Listen. Matthew 4.23. Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Matthew 4.24. And the news about him went out into all Syria, and brought, uh, they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains and demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Matthew eight sixteen. When the evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and he healed all who were ill. 
Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus was going about in the cities and the villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Matthew 10 and 1. Having summoned the twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Matthew 12, 15. Many, many uh, followed him, followed Jesus, and he healed them all. Matthew 12, verse 22. They were brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them, and he healed their sick. Matthew 15, verse 30. The great multitude came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, dumb, and many others that were laid down at the feet, and he healed them. Matthew 19, 2. Great multitudes followed him, and he healed them. Matthew 21, verse 14. The blind and the lame came into the temple, and he healed them. So what is it that identifies Jesus as more than just a mere man? What is it that gives him the right to come and speak with authority and say the kind of things that he's saying, the proclamations that he's making? Who is he to say that he's equal with God? Who is he to make the claim that every man's life, every man's eternal destiny stands or falls in relationship to him? Well, I'll tell you what. What gives him the authority to do that? It's his power. It's his power. The works which the Father has given me to accomplish, these very works I do and bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. His divine power, his miraculous power, declares the fact supremely of his divinity. It is irrefutable truth that he is Messiah. It is irrefutable truth that he is God come in the flesh. Now to get a better understanding of this, a more accurate understanding and a greater appreciation of what's going on here, You've got to try to put yourself in this day. You've got to understand how dramatic these healings were in the context of the day in which they occurred. In the day in which Jesus lived, 2,000 years ago, right, people didn't live very long. People died young. It was a world full of disease. And disease could not be dealt with properly. Diseases, for the most part, ran their course without any kind of intervention. So in the context of the world in which you're living some 2,000 years ago, there were always those people who were sick and dying around you. They were always sick and dying in your midst. Because medicine, the way we would understand it, and the medical sciences as we know it today, was virtually non-existent. Guess what? There are no hospitals. Pick up your iPhone, call 911. It's not going to help you. There's nobody to... There's not an iPhone, of course, but there's nobody on the other side to help you out with the situation. No hospitals, no medicines. And pain and suffering and anguish that goes along with disease was unchecked. That was just a way of life. No way to alleviate the vast number of diseases that were rampant at the time of Christ. From cancers to blindness to polio to paralysis to infections, plagues, tumors. Whatever it was, it just went on. Just went on and it went on unalleviated. No way to deal with it. So disease, sickness, and the soon inevitability of death was just kind of the way of life, it hung huge over everybody's life. It's just the way it was. So here's Christ. He shows up on the scene. And out of a heart of compassion, he starts touching people. Starts touching men and women at the point of their greatest pain, which would be the situation of their physical body, right? The diseases that are going on. Now, I would agree, I would agree with the commentators, and there are probably few, but I would agree with the commentators who say, and I don't think it's an overstatement or a too strong of statement, but I agree with the man that says that Jesus, when he was here on the earth, he literally wiped out all disease in Palestine. You've got to understand how big this is. He literally wiped out all disease in Palestine. He banished disease from the area. Healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people, the text says he healed them all. He healed them all. In the three-year ministry of Christ, there are about 70 texts in the New Testament in the four Gospels that deal with healings. I've counted 75. Some other authors have suggested that perhaps up to 90 New Testament texts. Christ literally banished disease from Palestine. Now what you have to understand is just how remarkable this is because it never happened up to this point in human history. It never happened up to this point in human history. 
And I think we have a difficulty understanding the works, the power of Christ. I think we have a difficulty understanding just how significant his ministry was in this area, uh, area, partly because of the time in which we live, when many diseases have been taken care of, right? I mean, some of them even uh, eliminated. We can deal with cancers in a lot of them. We can deal with, deal with issues of the heart, diseases of the heart. When, when penicillin was discovered, it was a game changer, right? And all these infections could be dealt with. In the day in which we live, we've extended the longevity of life. We've alleviated a lot of pain, all because of the advances in modern medicine. But this is not the way it was in the time of Christ. Again, pain, suffering, disease were commonplace. Once you got sick, there's no way to deal with that sickness. No way to deal with the disease. And another thing that you need to understand biblically is that during the first 1,600 years of biblical recorded history, during the first 1,600 years of biblical recorded history, all the way up to the time of the flood, there are no healings recorded. None. At the time of the flood, we went to the book of Genesis a number of years ago at the time of the flood. I think there were not just a few people on the planet. I don't think there was just a million or so people on the planet. I think there were billions of people on the planet. I think there are six, seven, eight billion people on the planet. And guess what? Not one recorded healing. The first biblical record of healing is at the time of Abraham. It's in Genesis 20. It's somewhere around 2200 B.C. So for the first 2200 years of history of the world, there are no recorded healings in the Bible. From the time of Abraham to Isaiah would be about the end of that life or or during that time period from uh, uh, Abraham to Isaiah be about 1,400, 1,500 years. 1,500-year time span. Only 20 recorded healings. From the time of Isaiah to the time of Christ, about 750 years, there are zero recorded healings in the Bible. I would bet that during these long time time spans of history, there was sickness, right? Disease, death, pain, suffering. But no biblical recorded events of healing, none. That's why in Matthew 9, verse 35, it says, Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The reason it's recorded is because it's a big deal. Matthew 9, 33, After the demon was cast out, the dumb man spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, Listen, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Mark Twelve, uh, Mark 2 and 12, we have never seen anything like this. The reason they have never seen anything like this is because the world had never seen anything like this. Are you, get, are you following me? That's why Christ, speaking of his healings, in Luke 10, 23, says, turning to his disciples, he said to them privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see, and they did not see them or hear the things which you hear. The Gospel of John, John chapter 9, of the blind man is healed. John nine thirty two. this is what the blind man said. He said, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard of that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. Then he says this, the blind man who is healed, verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Right, he couldn't do it. Couldn't do anything. Never happened before. Never in the history of the world is a man's eyes blinded, been given light. So the words of Christ, the works of Christ, those things prove that he is the Messiah, that he has the power to command healing. He has the power to command the expulsion of disease in Palestine. And his massive, widespread, all-encompassing ministry of healing proved who he was. God come in the flesh, along with, don't forget that, along with the power to cast out demons, the power over the demonic world. Verse 36, again, the witness which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given to me to accomplish, those very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Again, the power of Christ. Let me say this, I think we struggle with this issue and not really comprehending the magnitude of it, Not only the time we live because of modern uh, medicine, the healing ministry of Christ, we struggle to understand the magnitude of what Christ did because the modern misconception that healings 
occurred everywhere in the Bible. Right, they occurred everywhere in the Bible, and there's normative for the day, right? That's largely in part of the bad charismatic theology that has uh, infiltrated much of the church. Bad charismatic theology and, and the obscene, uh, quote-unquote, ministry of the many so-called, I would say, phony, self-proclaimed, false faith healers of our time. Healings aren't commonplace in the Bible. Healings aren't commonplace in an everyday event. They're few and far between. Few and far between biblically. God only displays miraculous powers very sparingly during all of redemptive history. In fact, biblically, miracles only occurred three times in redemptive history. I don't know if you knew that. They're at the time of Moses in the Exodus. They're at the time of Elijah and Elisha. And then they're at the time of Christ. And all three areas of time have the, all the same purpose for the miraculous to, to occur. They always authenticate the message, and they authenticate the messenger. So miracles, by their very nature, God stepping in and intervening and overturning natural law, is something that happened very rarely. It is not, and it was not, is not, something that's commonplace. So again, to attest to who Jesus really is, to attest to his divinity his divine nature, the fact that he's God come in the flesh to authenticate the superpower, supernatural power of the gospel, there is an explosion, literally, of miraculous healings. Christ again comes and banishes all illness from Palestine. It's interesting, as time goes on, as Christ has ascended into heaven and the early New Testament church, the early church starts to grow, there's less and less of this kind of activity less and less divine healing until you come to a place where Paul's sick and Timothy's sick and Epaphroditus is sick. Time you get to the pastoral epistles for the church, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, there's no mention of healing, there's no promise of healing, there's no healing ministry, and there's no direction for healing. Because healing, the healing ministry of Christ during the time of the New Testament was a supernatural explosion of power to identify who he really is. To point out that Jesus is God come in the flesh. That Jesus is the Messiah. The witness which I have is greater than that of John for the works which the Father has given to me accomplish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And let me tell you what, there's a lot more to say on that. A lot more, and we're going to do Lord willing. I want to continue to think about this miraculous power of Christ. I want you to understand, and again, am I not true? Is it not true? We have read through the book of John to the chapter, the fifth chapter, and we have said, I read through that chapter how many times, and now as we're working through it very slowly, all of a sudden the lights are coming on. I'm going like, man, I never saw that. I didn't saw that. That's cool. That's wonderful, right? When you hear the fact that Jesus heals people, before this sermon and the next one, Lord willing, when you heal the, the, hear the power of Christ that he heals people, it's not just, oh yeah, he can do that. It's like I go to the doctor. No. This is like spectacular to the nth degree. This is an explosion of the miraculous that the world had never seen up to that point. You want a witness? You want a witness? That he's more than just a teacher? Listen to what he says. Listen to what he does. Listen to the authentication of the Father who makes testimony, gives testimony, that he is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a fascinating study. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for just this quick look here into this chapter. We're thankful for the truth. We're thankful for the fact that uh, the Father, you, our Father, bear testimony, the reality of who Jesus is through John the Baptist. It's all men need to hear. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And men should be falling on their faces in repentance. Because you've offered them mercy and not judgment. How foolish unsaved man is to look at the cross and scorn it. How foolish man is to reject your kindness and face you in judgment. We just started to look into the witness or the testimony of who Jesus really is by his miraculous power, his divine work. 
power over the physical realm, power over the demonic realm, that again immediately removes him from any kind of nonsensical talk by nonsensical men who say that he was nothing more than just a religious leader, a good man, a moral philosopher that we should consider following. What trash. The witness is undeniable. The truth is most men don't want to come to him. They're unwilling to come because they love their sin. They hate the light that exposes their sin. For us who love the truth, it's only because of your kindness that you've opened our hearts, our minds to receive that testimony so that we can see the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we bow before you. We thank you. We adore you. We're so thankful for your redeeming grace. So thankful for the gospel. And so thankful that we have an opportunity now to take of the Lord's Supper together that reminds us of your compassion, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.